Welcome to the TAGT podcast. Come along as we work to connect the GT community and explore new ways to meet the unique needs of gifted individuals. This is the TAGT podcast. This podcast was recorded at the TAGT annual conference, Gift Ed 22. Hello and welcome to the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented podcast. I'm your host, Michael Fluche. A special thank you to our sponsor, Renzuli Learning. Check them out and get your free trial at renzulilearning.com. Today's episode is a very special session from our time last December at Gift Ed 22. What you're going to hear next is a live podcast recording from the Mastermind session, Why Students' Mental Health Matters. Let's jump right in. We're joined today by four fantastic voices. Heather Lambert, Chris Thomas, and Martha Thomas, along with today's curator and moderator, Emily Kircher Morris. In the summer of 2017, in the response to the urgent need for mental health services in her community, Heather Lambert left her 17-year career in education and founded Clear Hope Counseling here in the Houston area. Today, Clear Hope has multiple locations and partners with local school districts to provide on-campus mental health services as well as trauma-informed training to support educators and students. Chris and Martha Thomas are the co-founders of The Defensive Line, an organization founded with their son, Solomon Thomas, in honor of their daughter, Ella. The defensive line works to end the epidemic of youth suicide, especially for young people of color by transforming the way we communicate and connect about mental health. Chris has worked as a senior executive at Procter & Gamble, Frito-Lay, and Albert Culver, among others, and Martha spent many years as a classroom educator, most recently in Capel ISD. Emily Kircher Morris started her career in education and now is in private practice near St. Louis, Missouri as a licensed professional counselor where she specializes in supporting gifted, twice exceptional, and neurodivergent kids and adults as well as their families. Emily is also the host of Neurodiversity Podcast, inspired by her own experiences as a neurodivergent person. Emily is dedicated to destigmatizing neurodiversity and supporting neurodivergent people of all ages. Please take time now to join me in welcoming Emily, Heather, Martha, and Chris to our stage. Okay, so welcome to this live recording of the TAGT and the Neurodiversity Podcasts. I'm very excited uh, to be guest hosting this podcast. So I'm Emily Kircher-Morris, and I'm the host of the Neurodiversity Podcast, and our panelists for this discussion are going to help us talk about the importance of students' mental health, and they each bring some very specific experiences to provide a unique perspective to our conversations. So first, I'd like to welcome Heather Lambert. Um, Heather and I have just met, but I feel like we are kindred spirits in a lot of ways because we both come to this work from the education world where we worked as educators of gifted students, and then we made our way 
way to clinical work um, to support the mental health of kids and teens as licensed professional counselors. Our other panelists are Chris and Martha Thomas, and they bring a unique voice to this conversation as parents who lost their daughter Ella in 2018 when she completed suicide. Following Ella's death, they founded the nonprofit organization, The Defensive Line, with their son Solomon Thomas, and the, defenses, the Defensive Line's mission is to end youth suicide. And Martha, of course, also has experience as an educator, so she fits right in here. So thank you guys for being part of this conversation. Our pleasure, thank you. So to start us off, um, I think it's important to really recognize that the pressures and expectations that kids and teens have been experiencing in the last two decades have really grown. Um, and along with this, we've seen an increase in, in mental health concerns like anxiety and depression. The pandemic obviously seemed to exacerbate a lot of these issues. But I feel that even though our awareness of the concerns related to mental health in children and teens has grown, there's still a lot of misunderstandings about it. So to start us off, I'm curious, what myths do you think are the most important for us to dispel in order to help us support young people's mental health? Mm -hmm. Heather, do you want to start? Yeah, great questions. And such an important conversation. Just want to thank um, the board of TAGT and, of course, the organizers for creating space for this important conversation. I think the fact that we're having this conversation shows that we've really come a long way. But I think a myth that I would first address is just that gifted students don't have mental health needs. But the truth is, historically, mental health and gifted learners have gone hand in hand. There are four areas that we recognize as historical risk factors for gifted learners. And those include unhealthy perfectionism, anxiety and depression, as you mentioned, and then also suicidality. So as gifted educators, as supporters of gifted students, parents, loved ones, caregivers, we have to understand that mental health does apply to our gifted students as well. And I guess I would say um, that talking, one of the myths is talking about it is going to trigger thoughts of suicide or asking someone, are you thinking of suicide, is, is dangerous. It is a necessary question to ask. It is proven um, over and over again to not be a question that triggers the thoughts of suicide, but can actually relieve someone who might be thinking of suicide. Yeah, I think that that was one of the things in my clinical work, moving in from an ed as an educator, I had to get really comfortable with asking questions that make us feel uncomfortable. But if you don't talk about it, then it stays hidden, and that can really be a barrier for people to get help. Yeah. We In our workshops that we do, we actually have people practice looking at each other, not answering, just looking at each other, looking at someone else in the eye and saying, are you thinking of suicide? Are you thinking of hurting yourself? Do you wish that you had ended, were ending your life? Um, and just that practice of saying it, looking at someone, is so important. I had to practice saying it in, in the mirror at first. Yeah. And Martha, I just might add, one of the things that I've already learned from you and that I loved in our time earlier online, and I think this might be a good reframe for our audience, is those questions are hope-filled conversations mm -hmm. and hope-filled language, and I love that perspective. It's the exact opposite of what we might assume. We might assume that it's a doom and gloom conversation, but it's actually communicating care. Yes. I would say the other myth 
centers around uh, the issue of what, what I call viruses that exist that impact students, whether they're gifted or not gifted, which is bullying, you know, sexism, racism, microaggressions, unconscious implicit bias. I think those myths, I mean, those conditions uh, do have a negative impact on students, and we got to find a way to eliminate those issues, those conditions, so that they can thrive and do well. So one of the things we always talk in our workshop is the importance of understanding and creating a supportive environment so those viruses, those risks, are eliminated in the classroom, in the community, and in, 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 the, uh, in their homes so they can thrive. So that's a key thing I think is important to recognize that those issues can negatively impact the student. Chris, do you feel like, do you feel like, where do you see some progress being made in those areas? Is there anywhere that you feel like, okay, this is an area where I have some real hope that we're really making a difference here to get rid of some of those factors that really influence, it, it, and they're so pervasive yeah. in our students' lives. Yeah. If, if they're dealing with bullying, if they're dealing with racism, all yes. of those things, it, it's like, how can you, what I hear you saying is, is asking, how can I heal if, if these things are still yeah. happening? Yeah. But where do you where do you see the growth? Well, I see. I saw yesterday here. Uh, I went to a workshop where they were talking about equity and gifted and talented. And the work, the, the, the organizers, the presenters did a great job of showing the myths and the, and the facts as it relates to how to create an equitable equitable uh, environment. So that, I thought TAGT did a great job here. I think a lot of independent school districts are starting to realize it's important to bring it on as well and to talk about equity, inclusion, talk about the importance of belonging and connectivity in the classroom uh, because we know that when students are thinking about taking their life, that 75% of them are telling somebody within their classroom. They're talking to their peers. So that's why it's important that, that schools talk about the importance of peer support and talk about the importance of equity and inclusion. So I saw that here yesterday, which I think is a great uh, job and kudos to the organizers here for having that discussion. I think one of the things I also notice is that there's a real generational divide in so many areas in our society right now, which I think in many ways gives me a lot of hope yes. for things. Um, I also feel like the discussion about mental health, the discussions about neurodiversity, younger generations really are much more comfortable mm. talking about these things. And sometimes it comes to us, the adults, the educators, the parents, yeah. to help them kind of navigate that. I think one of the things that kids run into though is sometimes, like you mentioned, if they hear somebody mentioning these things, they may not know what to do with that information. Like they may be able to hear it, they may understand a little bit, but they may not understand what to do with it. What are, how, do, how should we help kids figure out like where they should go next if they are hearing somebody talking about something who maybe needs help? Well, I think that's why these conversations are so important. And I think that the very worst thing, just to kind of piggyback on what Chris was saying, the very worst thing that we can do as educators, as parents, the very worst thing that we can do is say nothing. So just beginning the conversations identifies you as a person who's accessible to a learner, to a student. You know, when I was a, a school counselor, very frequently we would have a tragic event occur on our campus and students would say that their teachers didn't say anything to them all day. No sharing suicide hotline, no sharing uh, just a moment to say, how are you guys? How are you doing? But instead, as educators, we frequently believe business as usual. 
is the best way to respond. But that's really a myth that we have to dispel mm -hmm. because inserting ourselves in this space to say, I understand that this is difficult, I don't have all the answers, but if you need help, I'm here, and if I don't know how to help, I'll connect you to someone who does. And just a word to any school counselors that might be in this space, the thing that I frequently did that teachers really appreciated is I would actually email them scripts. Today you might say, guys, we've had a loss in our school community and family. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna create space for us to talk for a minute about how you guys are feeling. And then I want everybody to pull out their phone and let's put 988 in our yeah. phones so that we can all know that this resource is readily available. Can you elaborate for people what that 988 resource is? Some people might not know. Yeah, so a brand new resource that's actually nationwide, 988. If you don't have it in your phone, you should put it in your phone. I would absolutely just suggest that you post it somewhere in your classroom as well, you can go um, to the National Suicide Hotline and print off different posters that you can post in your room. But that can help begin the conversation. And 988 is a national hotline. When someone is having a mental health crisis or is contemplating or considering suicide, this is a hotline that they can call and get live support. And this might be the first and easiest way just yes. to begin the conversation. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be the person that is in crisis. So if someone's worried about a friend, they can call 988 as well. Um, and there's also a text line, which a lot of students are more comfortable with, and it's 741-741. So please also put that in your phone so you have it to share. Um, but I have a friend who uh, actually works at, uh, as a volunteer at 741-741, and she says it's mostly young people that text in. And, you know, just, hey, I'm, my friend said this to me. Um, I'm worried about it. And I think everyone needs to know that that's available, not just for the person in crisis, for if you're concerned about someone who is in crisis. But I also want to give a shout out to our son because he plays for the New York Jets and he did part of the national campaign to get 988 out there um, with Dak Prescott. So, awesome. so Dak, yeah. So I think there's this constant discussion in education and in psychology about labels. Mm. And one of my areas of passion is really understanding that there is value in destigmatizing labels because I think it helps people get the support that they need, whether that's educational or psychological or medical. Um, but there are a lot of labels like gifted, like twice exceptional, like ADHD or autistic. And those can really be a double-edged sword in a lot of ways. When are some times that you think labels are useful, and when do you think they might cause more harm than good? And Chris, why don't we, why don't we start with you this time? You know, I, um, I always had a challenge with um, the term gifted and talented, to be honest. Um, I think that's a fair critique, yeah, that a lot of us have had that conversation. Part of it has to do with the fact that our daughter uh, was very normal as it relates to education achievement, our son was exceptional. And I saw how the label, how that label impacted her mental health, her self-esteem. Uh, and conversely, you know, our son had no issue with it, going to Stanford, you know, Pac-12 All-American um, honors and all. But I, I felt that for Ella, that label hurt her. And it also caused her to not have the kind of support that she needed for herself. Uh, and making sure that she excelled. So it was an issue I had. Martha did a great job of making sure that she got the help she needed as it relates to you know, therapy and, and as well as medication. 
But it was always a struggle for me because I know that was a big part of her not taking care of herself, of her not feeling like she, she was worthy of doing things uh, you know, here uh, in school uh, or, or, or athletically. So that was a huge issue that I had with it, unfortunately. But our son Solomon was never labeled gifted and talented. And he went, you know, he got into Stanford. He had a full football scholarship. He um, thrived on the football field as well as in, in his academics. And like Chris said, he was academic, all Pac-12, you know, against other schools. I mean, he did great. He loved it. Um, and he, he finally felt that at Stanford, people believed in his ability to be smart. Um, he often said, in middle school, he said, I'm so tired of people assuming that I'm stupid because I'm black. Um, and that was a real issue. And I know it's, it's still an issue in many school districts, yeah. like we've already talked about. I, I think there's also a comparison. We talk about gifted and talented. But gifts and talents can be domain specific. Mm. And there's a lot of pressure. Like, so the kids that we work with here, most of them are gifted and talented in the academic setting. But you can be gifted in athletics. You can be gifted in music, in these other areas. Mm. And I think that there's, there can be pressure in any of those environments that then can lead to imposter syndrome or, yes. or anxiety about letting people, like a lot mm -hmm. of those perfectionistic tendencies. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it does seem like in high school you're either an athlete hmm. or you're gifted and talented, right. but you can't be both, you know. So, so labels do sometimes put people in a lane that they think they can't go out of. Right. And I would say that's an important consideration even when you think about applying that label to a truly gifted student. Truly gifted students are not gifted in every single area. Mm. Sometimes they have social struggles. And when we look at our high-achieving gifted students, they can really experience an extreme amount of performance anxiety with expectations that are placed on them by that label. So maybe not a popular opinion, but I like labels. I'm a mental health clinician, and we assign labels. And very frequently, clients are encouraged by the idea that they're not alone. I'm not the only person with this unique set of, of symptomology or characteristics. I think we have to take the idea of neurodivergency and place it on top of the gifted and talented identification and label. We just have to expand our idea of what normal is for learners, and I think it's our job as educators to do a better job defining exactly what the label means. We have a, we have a personal story. I have twins that are 19 now, but I remember driving home from kindergarten and my son hands me a letter from his backpack, and the letter says that he's been selected for screening for gifted and talented. And his twin sister is frantically looking through her backpack mm. and looking and looking and looking and looking. And she looks mm. up at me with tears in her eyes and says, Mommy, I didn't get a letter. And that is a great moment um, mm. of challenge for me as a parent. But that's when we can focus to a strengths-based discussion. Just because you have strength in one academic area doesn't mean that you have strength in every academic area or that you excel socially. And just because you don't have an extreme level of giftedness academically doesn't mean that you don't excel socially or in athletics or in fine arts or in competitive mm -hmm. speech or other fine art areas. So I think the label can help by 
furthering the education and understanding of exactly what it is that we're identifying. And I think if we do that, we can also maybe relieve some of that performance anxiety from gifted students who think they're exposed to excel in every single area of their life. And mm. that's just too much pressure. I think another factor that is near and dear to my heart, of course, is with the twice exceptional kids, right? Mm -hmm. Those kids, I think we are still helping people to recognize, even within the gifted ed community, but also beyond it, that a child can be both gifted and have a disability. They can be autistic, they can be dyslexic, they can mm -hmm. ha you know, be ADHD. Like all of those things can, can layer. And I think it's also very confusing for kids to maybe get one of those labels. So they're labeled as gifted and they get that stamp at a really young age, but then they're identified with ADHD as they get older, or they're identified as autistic as they get older, um, or maybe they're not, but they have, there's like this whole bag of expectations that comes with any of those things. And so if I'm gifted, why am I not getting straight A's? Mm -hmm. and, and what is the perception I'm getting from my teachers or my parents who are like, well, I thought you were supposed to be smart. Mm -hmm. And those things have drastic impacts on people's overall mental health. It's, if you have this idea of who you're supposed to be and you're not living up to that. And the flip side of that is, kids who are neurodivergent and you know, autistic or ADHD or whatever, and they, maybe they get that label first, but then they also do have these gifts and talents, but those aren't then supported because they don't meet the qualification criteria or whatever, and however we identify students for those supports, that stands in the way. And again, that can also really cause a lot of other mental health concerns, anxiety, depression, because it, it just doesn't, we're constantly trying to fit that square peg mm -hmm. into the round hole. Right. You, um, what you just said reminded me of an episode I just listened to on your podcast about privilege. And one of the things about privilege, some folks can unmask their concerns, and there are some people who can't unmask things like it. You can't unmask the color of your skin or your gender. And it made me think of the whole element of microaggressions and how some of these microaggressions negatively impact students, mental health. And you know, when you think about the average uh, African-American or uh, marginalized uh, student goes through 5.2 microaggressions a day. I mean, that's serious. That's pretty significant impact on, on the toll on their, on their, on their psyche. And it, I sometimes think microaggressions is misnomer because they think it, it's, for example, one of the microaggressions Ella always encountered was, you look good for a black girl. And it, that's not micro. It's micro because it's one-on-one. -on -one. Macro means it's organizationally. So, but to go through that 5.2 times a day, even if you're gifted and talented, even if you're a great athlete, that, that, it's like that constant you know, pounding on, on your arm. And at some point in time, you're just going to explode. Yeah. So as parents, as teachers, as educators, as coaches, we've got to make sure we create these supportive environments so those, those th things can go away or we can reduce them so that they can be in a, a, an environment where they can grow and thrive. Yeah, masking is a really important concept. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, in the, in the autistic community, we talk a lot about masking. I feel like that's kind of the first place where people really talk about that. And they talked about camouflaging and the damage that comes around when somebody is constantly trying to hide who they are. They're either trying to mimic situations or, or interactions to fit in, or they're trying to hide other pieces so that they don't stand out. 
um, and that can be really detrimental. But when you bring it into the context just of gifted education, think about the gifted child who when they get to middle school, they have to mask their gifts because they don't want to stand out. Or the, the, the um, you know, black or brown student who, from a cultural perspective, they, they get pressure from their peers because they don't want to, quote unquote, act white. Mm -hmm. And so then they don't want to be, appear mm. to be too smart. So they wear that mask. Mm. How do we let these kids live their authentic lives? Yes. Because ultimately, that's when, when you are aligned with who you are and your actions, that's where you don't have those mental health Amen. concerns. Amen. The mental health concerns come when there's this disconnect yes. right. between those pieces. Well yeah. And I think to even add to that, just reflecting on Eric Erickson's stages of psychosocial development, our, our teenagers, our adolescents and teens are really in that stage of development that is identity versus confusion. Mm. And the competence that we want to emerge from that stage with is really fidelity. And it's hard to have fidelity when you feel like you can't be your true and authentic self. Yes. And so a part of this conversation and the importance of today's conversation is just understanding that we want to create a space where everyone is accepted. Their yes. gifts yes. are celebrated. Yes. But their challenges and their weaknesses are not used against them. But instead, as a supportive community, we say, we're here to help. Yeah. We want to listen. We want to support you. I think a lot of times our underachieving students are selective achieving students because their great fear is the fear of success mm -hmm. and the backside of that, the fear of failure. Mm -hmm. So they wear so many different masks so that their true identity is never actually revealed but that actually stunts their psychosocial yes. development and creates connectedness problems mm -hmm. among their student and peer groups. Heather, can you elaborate a little bit on that concept of the fear of success? Because I think people think of perfectionism and they think of the fear of failure, mm. but they don't always think about how a fear of success can impact somebody. Yeah, so a number of years ago, I got the awesome opportunity to, to go bungee jumping. No adrenaline junkies in the room. Yeah. So you would think that the scariest part of bungee jumping, right, is looking down and seeing that the ground is there and you're going to jump off of a perfectly good platform, you yeah. know, with just a cord wrapped around. But it's not. The scariest part of bungee jumping is not jumping off the platform and it's not even approaching the ground at a rapid speed. The scariest part of bungee jumping is when you begin that ascension and you go higher and higher and higher and higher and you see your friends standing on the platform that you just jumped off of and you're waving to them but you have no idea mm. just how high you might go. Mm. And that gives us an understanding wow. of the fear of success. Mm. What will be expected of me? When will it stop? What, what's going to be expected of me next? If I truly perform and show people the reality of what I can do, Will I be expected to perform at that, late, at that level forever? And will I become socially isolated because people will see me as different and not accept me wow. for who I truly am? You should try bungee jumping. <laughs> <laughs> I've never been bungee I jumping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great fun. Great fun. I, I, think, um, I think that's, again, really relevant. It, yeah. like, I think for... Uh, this is kind of gets back into the conversation also just about the benefit or drawback of labels, right? Which is, if we label somebody as, as gifted, if I succeed, what if that means I don't get to pursue this other path? Mm. I have to give something up. A lot of our gifted kids have, are, have multiple areas of potential. 
but if I succeed in this area, it means I can't go down that path. Or if I'm a successful athlete, does it mean I can't also be a successful student? Like how, you know, and how do I balance all of those things? And there's a lot of pressure there. So I think one, one thing that kind of goes from this conversation to the next actually is, is talking about in underachievement. Because we talk a lot in the gifted ed world about underachievement, and I think sometimes it's a really ambiguous topic. We don't always really quite know how exactly to define that. Um, so I'm curious about how each of you understands the concept of underachievement and how do you think that that really impacts mental health? Well, I think underachievement is, um, you know, like a way of not, right, not succeeding. It's not, this is not my expertise, but I do feel like kids with all of my students were on social media. If their parents didn't think that they were on social media, they still were on social media. Um, they learn their mental health language from TikTok. You yes. know, they just, even at seventh grade, they, it might not be accurate, but they have the language. So. Um, but it's almost like, well, I can't live like that, so why should I even try, right? I mean, I, my life's not going to look like this, so why put the effort in? Mm -hmm. I don't, yeah. Absolutely. I think when you think about a classic underachiever, if there's an idea of classic underachiever that frustrates a teacher in the classroom because you know the student's ability and performance, are not matched up. We think about the idea of cognitive dissonance in the world of psychotherapy. And that's the idea that my actions are not matching my belief. And the space between my actions and my belief is always filled with two things, depression and or anxiety. And I think that applies to the underachiever. There's that tension between the expectation of what they should achieve and what they're actually achieving. And, and as a mental health concern, that can lead to feelings of alienation, isolation, guilt, shame. But we have to remember that all of us and all of our students have four basic needs, just to borrow from the Lakota Indian tribe tradition of universal needs. We all need to feel like we belong. We all need to feel like we can generously connect and contribute to the community. We need to feel like we have independence and the ability to make our own decisions but we also need to feel like we can master something in life. All of us have all four of those needs. So when we're working with gifted students or underachieving students, we don't just focus on mastery, but we focus on belonging. Mm. What is it that helps you feel connected to your peers? Mm. Because frequently we feel that that underperformance is how they get their connection. Or generosity, how do you get your generosity needs met? Sometimes it's in the classroom through underperformance so that they don't mess up the curve for everyone else or make the teacher think that everybody understands because they understand. And then also in that area of independence, sometimes when students have helicopter parents or are micromanaged by parents who have mismanaged expectations, they can take their area of independence in underperformance. You can't make me perform. But if we can encourage the conversations around those unmet needs, I think we can begin to see students' depression and anxiety decreasing as we begin to see their performance and their ability align. Yeah. Um, that's great. I, 
As you know, I'm not from the education background, I'm from corporate America, and the first thing I thought of when you mentioned underachievers, I thought of the times when Solomon was at Stanford in Palo Alto and how during that time, Palo Alto had one of the highest suicide rates for teens because uh, of the pressure the parents and other people were putting on those kids who were gifted and talented, bright, but didn't get into Stanford, didn't get into Harvard, didn't get into MIT or whatever, and they took their life. And I, that made me think of how important it is for us to make sure we meet students and our kids where they are and help them understand that they are truly valuable as they are and we love them as they are and to accept them unconditionally and to support them so that they can leverage whatever skill they have to be successful. And, and we talked about belonging and we talked about uh, you know, making sure people are connected, making sure that they have full lives outside the classroom, outside the athletic fields, and so that they can just leverage what skills and talents they have. So I just thought of how do we support our kids so that they don't feel like they're, they're not successful and that whatever they do is going to be, it's going to be fine. So that's yeah. one of the things I thought of straight so away good. when I thought of underachievers. I know it's not probably education focused, but it's sort of. No, it's so <laughs> I think it's re so totally good. relevant, totally relevant. And I think what I hear you really saying though is that it's about the process and not the product. Yes. Mm -hmm. And when we hyper-focus on the product, when we hyper-focus on the outcome, underachievement is so, in, is so closely related with motivation. Yes. And when we talk about motivation as educators, how many of us have said, oh, I just really want my students to have that love for learning. I want them to be intrinsically motivated to be successful. I want them to do all of these things. And then we go ahead and we have them go through a class and we slap a grade on whatever they do. Yeah. And then we rank them in order for their GPA, mm -hmm. how successful they've been. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, so we're, <laughs> we're not, we're, we're, we're not aligned right. in that area. Yes. Alfred Adler is a psychologist and one of my favorite quotes from him, well, I'm gonna paraphrase it because I'll probably say it wrong, but essentially it is that all of human life is a striving for perfection. And he's not talking about the perfection that we're talking about. What he's talking about is that human nature is about growth. Yeah. It's about having a goal. It's about wanting to work towards something. It's about bettering ourselves. And when we put kids in an environment where they feel they are only valued based on what they produce, how many touchdowns do you score? How many, how many AP tests do you get fives on? How many colleges do you get accepted to? Mm. If those are the things that they see as what is valued, who isn't an underachiever? Mm -hmm. How do you ever reach whatever that finish line is? Mm. And I think it then comes back to us as a community, how do we help people realize that they are more than their resume? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it really makes me think of tomatoes and a strengths-based approach because two years ago, we adopted our daughter, who will be 15 in a couple of weeks, but she came into our home with a lot of a developmental trauma, complex cumulative trauma, and, and she was very defeated, very, very much underperforming in the educational setting and just really struggling. And so we very quickly began to look for strengths that we could highlight and identify, not necessarily academically or socially. We just began to look for strengths. And, we noticed that she is really, really great at slicing and chopping tomatoes. 
So we bought her her own special tomato chopping knife. We began to talk about, you know, that that would be her job. Anytime we were having a salad or burgers, our daughter would be the assigned person to take care of the tomatoes. Unless you think that's insignificant, I remember standing at church one Sunday with her by my side, and someone came up and said, thank you so much for the lovely meal that you sent to us. And she said, I chopped the tomatoes. Do you see, when we give people something to recognize as their strength, they lash on to that. And that goes back to that Lakota Indian tribe idea of needing mastery. And I think one of the most inspirational things that we can do as parents and educators is find out what our students' tomato chopping is. Mm. And whatever that is, to make it a really big deal. Mm. Because when we make it a big deal, then they're free to make it a big deal. And it doesn't have to necessarily be about academic performance. Mm. Every student in your classroom every single day has a unique strength. And I just challenge and encourage you to look for that and highlight it because that's how you'll change the world. And sometimes those strengths might be naming every Pokemon (laughs) that was ever created and telling you their combat powers. Sometimes it might be analyzing their Minecraft world. But that's where those connections come from. I, I find that like my work as a clinician I do truly know more about Pokemon than any woman my age <laughs> should know about. It's really, but, but part of that is because I give that space mm-hmm. for kids to talk about their passions and talk about their interests. I mean, and, and I have a client who I can actually tell you in rank order his top five Batman villains, but, but it, like you said, it, it seems silly. And I remember one time I was talking to a parent of a client and we were talking about Pokemon and she goes, you guys talk about Pokemon? And I said, well, yeah, but we, but in addition to just the connection and the rapport and knowing that this kiddo really doesn't have a lot of people who will sit there and and engage and listen about those topics, it also lets him feel like an expert and we can pull it back around. So like I had a client who, this, you know, who was super into Harry Potter specifically, and he was dealing with bullying at school. And so what we did is, as a clinical intervention is we sat there and we went through and we researched Greek and Latin word parts to create our own spells to combat the bullying in a Harry Potter style, like what Harry Potter yeah. would have done. And so we pulled that in as a strength to support him so that he felt empowered, not only by the fact that he could handle this situation with these kids at school, but also that it was something that was authentic to him. It was his idea, it was his way of handling it, it was his way of of getting through it. And that relieved a ton of anxiety for him and that brought it all back. You know, and, and we can be creative that way. And that's one of the things I love about gifted ed is I feel like as gifted ed teachers, in a lot of ways, we have a lot of flexibility to be really creative with how we connect and support our students. Um, and I think that that was one of the things that I always really loved about mm-hmm. teaching those kids. Through, through mm-hmm. these connections, and like you said, we've created, you've created, if you do it in your classroom with your students, especially someone you might see that you're worried about, you know, your gut is just telling you that they're a little off you've created this connection, they might feel safer coming in to tell you when they're having a mental health struggle, when things aren't going well. What if, what if that space is judgment-free mm-hmm. and that, they, that allows you to have this 
more open, safer classroom that kids are safe telling you when something's not right. Yeah, that reminds me of a really important statistic that I shared at a school district training, and actually I was challenged on this statistic by the superintendent because it's that difficult to believe. But don't worry, I shared my sources with him. We're great friends now. But that is just this idea. And I think this is so important to recognize and to hear and to acknowledge because so many times as educators, particularly right now, we, we feel burnt out, we feel overworked, we feel underappreciated. But do you know that the number one factor that determines that a student will be both academically successful and reduces their risk of suicide and other mental health challenges in education is connection to one caring adult Amen. on yep. campus. You might be that person for someone. Yep. You might have a student who's contemplating suicide mm -hmm. and they're going to come to school because they know that they can trust you. Mm -hmm. And we cannot underestimate the importance and the power of that connection. And I think recognizing strengths is a part of that. Yeah. Creating that, that judgment-free space is a part of that. Yeah. But don't be afraid, educators. Please do not be afraid to connect with your students in a way outside of your content yeah. because uh, it really does matter. Absolutely. I I'm a living example of the power mm -hmm. of somebody believing in my strength and also creating a supportive environment because um, I, I am a survivor of uh, racial, domestic, or physical and sexual abuse. Mm. And I had an educator who believed in me and gave me the understanding of how I could make a difference, whether it's on the basketball court or in my classroom. And it helped me get through those things so that I could then be the first person in my family to attend and graduate college to get a great job at Procter & Gamble, Frito-Lay, to get international assignments in Australia and around the world, and to create a great environment for our kids. And, but that one person you know, helped me get through that and helped me connect with him and others to understand that I can get past this and that I, am not a vic I don't need to be a victim and I can survive and make mm. a difference. So that, that's a, I mean, I'm a living example of what you guys are talking about. Yeah, I think the other thing that I would also mention is how important it is that if you're that person, it goes back to what we said at the very beginning, it's okay to have those uncomfortable conversations. I think sometimes there are teachers who the minute they see any sign of distress, they immediately want to go to the school counselor or the administrator, which of course, absolutely, that's your, that's your team there. But, but maybe that student, if if they're called out of class to go talk to a counselor or something without knowing what it is, they're just gonna shut down. If you're the one with that relationship, yes. reaching out yeah. your hand and, and bringing them along is really important. Yes. Mm -hmm. I, I know that another area that I'm always talking with my clients about it is um, self-advocacy. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's so important. You know, how do they know when they need help? Where do they go to get it? And how do they even find the words to say? So. What are some of your thoughts about how we can better encourage kids to find people where they can, and places where they can self-advocate when they need help? So uh, I know 75% of kids will, that are thinking of suicide will tell another student. So it's not just uh, advocating for themselves, but advocating for each other. Yes. And knowing when that time is to go tell an adult. A, a trusted adult, and that is always, or that time when they call the 988 number, or they, they um, text 741741. Those things 
shouldn't be, it shouldn't be like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm so desperate now. It should be before you become desperate. It should be upstream. Chris and I use a quote in our workshops um, from Desmond Tutu. Oh, it's, uh, it's about hope. It's about, uh, he mentioned there comes a time where we need to stop pulling people out of the river. Uh, we need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. Yeah. And that's a key piece about hope and prevention that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So get, get those kids to even advocate for themselves and to advocate for each other before it's too late or it's too bad of a situation. And as the adults, the trusted adults, we need to be able to, to go, yeah, okay, let, let's sit and talk. Let's come up with some solutions. Mm -hmm. Let's, you know, if they need to go to the counselor or get some ideas from the counselor. I love the idea that you wrote scripts out for yeah. people yeah. when there were, you know, traumatic things that happen. I think that those are all times when we need to have our radar up about any kid. Some kids feeling more emotions than others. So those are times that's maybe their gift, you know, is to be more empathetic. So when things happen, um, you know, like Ubalde, I mean that those, that we can have a reaction, a response, something ready for those kids, not to be putting out the fire drills, mm -hmm. not to be just having those just for all those drills that we have in school, that we have a response ready for our kids who are in emotional crisis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think cultural considerations, even though we're talking about student advocacy, I think we have to consider what the culture is like on our campus mm -hmm. and in our school district. So, some tips that we've mentioned today, administrators in the room, I, I hope that you'll take some of these to heart and at least consider them. Asking every single educator to, to post the text and phone hotlines, asking that these conversations be ongoing. School counselors, one of my favorite things to do as a school counselor was counselor's corner in the cafeteria. We have to be there for lunch, Judy, anyway. Might as well have some fun, right? And I was telling somebody earlier, I walked up um, to the registration table and they said, do you need a validation? And I was like, I would love a validation. <laughs> right. Sorry, mental health specialist. <laughs> but she complimented my jacket, so I felt better. I felt like I could leave the table. But one of the things that we did in Counselor's Corner in public school is on Fridays, we would have... Um, the, the counselor table open for students to come and receive an affirmation. Yeah. Students would wait in line during their lunch break to just receive an affirmation. But all these things together create a culture of understanding that we have mental health needs so that when a student is experiencing a mental health need, they're not at a loss. They yeah. know who the go-to people are. They know where they can go to see their counselor. Yeah. They know which teachers are pro-mental health and are, are, are aware of mental health concerns and needs. And even sometimes teachers disclosing your own struggles, especially post-pandemic, can be so healing for students. We are not robots. We are people too. So just consider what, what is the culture like in your classroom, on your campus, and in your district. Just being a little bit vulnerable mm -hmm. might make those kids a little bit more open to tell their struggles. And I say, you can go to our website too, at thedefensiveline.org, um, and our son is there. There are many videos of our son talking about our daughter's struggles, his struggles, um, some videos with Dak, both of them talking about their mental health struggles after um, Dak lost his brother to suicide and Solomon lost 
his sister, Ella. Um, you know, and, and so sometimes seeing these big, giant men that are supposed to be huge and all-powerful, and it looks like they have it all, they might have the exact same feelings that, yeah. that these two guys did. Yeah, yeah, authenticity, it really, I mean, it's, and also making sure that you check in with your uh, classmates, making sure they're okay and listening to them, and really peeling the onion back and making sure that they're having a real conversation about how they're feeling, because we know the number one reason why people don't seek help is stigma. So we've got to find a way to normalize the conversation and talk about it. So you guys have talked some great individual things. One of the things I think we need to do organizationally as it relates to promoting student mental health is making sure within each district we're having funded and mandated courses on mental wellness, suicide prevention, and so it's an integral part of the curriculum, integral part of the training of leaders because we know that you, you guys, I mean, teachers are always doing fire drills and shooter drills and all this stuff. We know that at a minimum, 20% of students walking in are thinking about suicide. Half of them have a mental condition. So we gotta find a way to talk about this on a regular basis and give people the tools they need to, to work it out. Mm -hmm. I, I've, never, I've never thought of that analogy about fire drills and shooter drills. Where are the mental health drills? Yes. That's the emergency that our kids yes. are facing right. every day. And do we know what to do? Yes. Mm -hmm. Do we know what to do? Right. Mm -hmm. One of the things we do in our workshop is that we, we have people create an action plan for when um, someone is, is having a mental health crisis. Who do, why do you respond, first of all, and who do you, where do you go? What are the steps that you take during that mental health crisis? for that kid so that you're prepared. If you've written it down, you're a lot more likely yes. to remember it, right? Yes. And I would just say there are mandates in place for required trainings. And I, I worked in education for 17 years, and you guys, it's just us friends right now, so <laughs> I'm gonna admit this out loud. You know, when you have to watch the Bloodborne Pathogen video and the suicide video, you just click play in your office while you work on important things, right? And I just to kind of highlight what Chris said is these these conversations are too important to just play in the background. And so I would encourage the administrators in the room, the educational leaders in the room, consider having people like us come into your yes. school, people with skin on, people with stories to tell, people who can connect. We were talking about that earlier. It's, it's sometimes so much different and better than a video yes. to empower your teams to have a mental health response, yes. to have a suicide response, to have an awareness. I think it would be an, an investment that you would see would impact every single outcome area across your campus as you lead your educators to, um, to take this really seriously. So as we wrap up, I have one last question for you and I'm, I'm gonna kinda get a little bit personal. I think all of us can recognize in the last 10 to 15 years that our own awareness has changed so much about how we support kids, whether, whatever our experiences might be. In just one or two sentences, if you could give yourself a message from back then about what you wish you had known, what would that be? That's a great question. I think I'm gonna Maya Angelou the heck out of this one. Because, you know, Maya Angelou says, you do what you know until you know better. But when you know better, you do better. Mm -hmm. 
And I think sometimes it's hard to be a trailblazer. And I think I would tell that younger version of myself to speak up, to stand out, to advocate. It's okay. Those of you who've been here today and get to hear this as a podcast, you can't unhear this. And it is a call to action. And I just wonder what step you'll take. I guess I would, uh, I feel like that just shifted me back into the could have, would have, should have mm. uh, before our daughter died. But I do wish that I knew then what I know now. And I could have handled things differently. I would have seen more warning signs for her and for many students that I've had that have struggled. And um, many of our kids' friends that have struggled and not been so, they'll get over it, kind of, or they'll, go, they'll get through these things. So I, that's what I would, I would have educated myself more. Mm. I'm still struggling to answer the question. To be honest, uh, all I can say uh, about my younger self and what I know now is um, just the importance of loving myself and um, making sure that um, I always felt that I, I am worthy of being at the table and uh, being a part uh, of it and not only being a part of it, but excelling in it and then helping others excel in it as well uh, and work it together. So uh, that, that's what I think I would do. So. Heather Lambert, Martha Thomas, and Chris Thomas, thank you so very much for all of your work thank you. and for this conversation today. Thank, thank you. you. Very much. Thanks again to our guests today. We're so glad you could join us. If you're interested in learning more about today's guests and their work, check out the links included with this podcast post. And if you're not yet a member of the Texas Association for the Gifted and Talented, we hope you'll join our community by visiting TX Gifted and clicking on the Join tab. Renzuli Learning is proud to support the Texas Association for the Gifted, their podcast and gifted education nationwide. Be sure to visit our website at renzulilearning.com and sign up for your free trial to experience firsthand how we deliver a rigorous, personalized learning environment for all students pre-K through 12 and how we align our resources to the TEKS and provide student-driven project-based learning that unpacks the natural passions and abilities in all children.